for our second message today. We have a sermon from Mr. Curtis Whiteley entitled, Walking Worthily, Part 3. Thank you, Reggie. Well, good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone here, as it always is, on another beautiful, steamy summer day. The sun, the, the summer is here. It made its appearance this week, as we, we you could probably all imagine. Uh, uh, I, I do mo, I mo, mow lawns on the side, and so I got my fill of uh, this heat this week. So today, uh, as Reggie pointed out, Walking Worthily Part 3, uh, we are going to continue in the series that I began on 1 Thessalonians uh, back in April, I believe. Uh, and we are going to, this is Sermon 4 in the series. But in the previous two messages, we've been covering 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, just the first few verses. Uh, and this is going to be kind of a third part within the series of this idea of walking worthily. And so... We've been talking about this idea of walking worthily as Paul in 1 Thessalonians, the second chapter, uh, verse 12 kind of alludes to when he says that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And so what we've done is, is that we've looked at these first 12 verses. We haven't gotten through all 12. That's what we're doing. We're going to finish up today. Uh, and we're looking at how Paul describes how him and his traveling companions acted while they were in Thessalonica, and we are applying those characteristics to ourselves. And so, in our previous two me messages, we've looked at three different characteristics of what walking worthily looks like. We talked about walking with a purpose, about how Paul and his traveling companions came to Thessalonica with a purpose, with an aim. Secondly, we looked at walking with boldness and courage. Despite all of the trials that, you know, came upon them by traveling around and preaching the gospel in Philippi and here in Thessalonica, they walked with boldness and courage. And third, last message, we talked about walking with integrity. And so today, we're going to look at walking with love. This message is about love. Now, it's kind of strange because I was thinking about this. Every message from a pulpit from the Bible should be about love, right? The Bible, the Word of God, God Himself is the epitome of love. And so everything we do should be driven by love. And so that is the undercurrent. And, and, and I'm not going to leave it there because I want to be a little bit more specific by what I mean by love because there's three particular things, we could probably get more points out of this, but I chose three particular points that we can look at as we read this last little section to verse 12 here in 1 Thessalonians, the second chapter, about what it looks like to walk in love, at least in regards to how Paul demonstrates it, as well as the ultimate example of Jesus Christ. So let's go to 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2. I'm not going to read verses 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. We're just going to read verse 7. Paul previously had talked about how they came to Thessalonica. He talked about how like, they are witnesses themselves of how they acted, how they came to them, not with, you know, as a salesman with a, a sales pitch, but in genuineness, not as a trickster, not trying to fool the Thessalonians, not for their own benefit, but for the benefit of them and the glory of God. 
And Paul says in verse 7 of 1 Thessalonians 2, But we were gentle among you as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. And we preached to you the gospel of God. Verse 10, you are witnesses. He continually says this, by the way, as we pointed out in the last few messages. You yourselves are witnesses. Don't you remember? He's calling upon their own recollection of how they acted. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And so Paul starts out by talking about how he acted, what their motivation for acting such a way, and what the evidence was for them acting this way. And so he starts off in verse 7 talking about how they acted, which was as like a nursing mother. The phrase nursing mother is the Greek word trophos, which simply just means nurse. From a historical standpoint, this phrase alludes to something more than just a mother, though. In the Greco-Roman world, the use of what was known as wet nurses is what's being implied here. Wet nurses were a common thing in the Greco-Roman world. A wet nurse was a woman who was charged with nursing children other than their own. And the literature during this time period of wet nurses tends to lead us to believe that they were really looked highly upon, that they were adored, that they were beloved individuals because they would care tenderly for children who were not their own. There are a lot of reasons for this. Sometimes it was a slave. slave might have a child, and instead of giving up the labor of that slave, that mother, they would use a wet nurse to nurse the child that that slave had just bore. Here Paul is using the analogy of the wet nurse who cares so much for children that aren't even her own, but that much more would care for children that were her own. As Paul says, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So he's using this familial language, this language of being tender, of being gentle, like a nursing mother would care for their own children. Their motivation for acting this way is told to us in verse 8. Paul tells us that they were willing to impart not just the gospel message, but their very own lives. And the motivation was simple. The motivation for this tender and gender, uh, gentle disposition toward the Thessalonians was driven by an intense longing of love for this group of people. Now this word that we read here, so affectionately longing for you, is kind of a unique Greek phrase. We don't have a lot of examples of this to really go by, but there is one interesting thing that was discovered, and that was a 4th century tombstone that described a mother and father in you know, sad yearning for their dead child. So it just shows you how this Greek word was used. It is a deep longing and affection 
that's being described that Paul and his traveling companions had for this group of people. The evidence for this, the evidence for all of these things that Paul has talked about, about their integrity with the gospel, not trying to be a trickster, about their aim of being genuinely trying to promote the gospel of Christ, trying to bring to the Thessalonians the salvation message. The evidence is shown in how they didn't even expect anything in return from the Thessalonians. Paul tells us that they were to support themselves for their basic needs and did not rely on the Thessalonians. And he beckons them, the Thessalonians, to recall the toil and hardship, which means hard, hard work and difficult circumstances, in order not to be a burden to the believers. Here you have a group of people, right? And we've seen the, the, the difficulties that they went through in order to be able to do this, in order to be able to support themselves. I'm sure that they were in Thessalonica and they were working at places and people would call, oh, those are those guys right there that are causing all the trouble here in the city. Because we've seen the difficulties that they faced because of the message that they were preaching. It says that they worked day and night, probably whenever they could. And many believe, if you read about what, you know, one thing, just a side note, all Jewish individuals, especially a Pharisee like Paul, uh, one of the requirements was, was to learn a trade as they were children. They would have to learn a trade. They could not just say, well, I'm just a scholar, I'm a rabbi, I'm a teacher. They were expected to learn some sort of trade. And a lot of people point to Acts the 18th chapter, verse 3, as Paul probably being what's known as a tent maker or someone who worked with leather. But what has to be remembered is this, what he alludes to before this. He says, we didn't ask anything, and I'm paraphrasing, we didn't ask anything of you even though we as apostles could have demanded it. They could have asked for support, but they chose not to. They could have expected support, but they did not expect or they did not ask for it. Probably, as we read later on in 1 Corinthians the ninth chapter, verse 12, Paul talks about this very same thing, and he alludes to not doing this in other circumstances to avoid being an obstacle in the way of the gospel. He didn't want the Thessalonican believers to think that maybe he was just trying to get gain from them financially. He didn't want the Thessalonian believers to, to hear him preach this gospel message, right? About this self-sacrificing Jesus Christ, this Messiah. And then at the same time, see him being demanding, being authoritative. This is the example that we were given. And I think that there are so many different ways that we could go for this, but there's three different characteristics of what, to me, walking in love looks like as we look at the example that Paul gives us here. So walking in love, what does that look like? Number one, the first point today is to walk with gentleness. Walk with gentleness. It is interesting that Paul later, he uses this phrase in 2 Corinthians, the, the, the 10th chapter, verse 1. He says, by the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. These two characteristics, humility and gentleness, are the defining characteristics of Jesus' heart. We read, let's go to Matthew, the 11th chapter. A beautiful passage. 
in Matthew, the 11th chapter, is Jesus is seeing the towns in Samaria, not Samaria, but uh, the region of Palestine that are, you know, that, that are not believing his message. They're seeing his works and they're rejecting him. He says at the very end of chapter 11 of Matthew's gospel, he says, Come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest and take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And we see here that Jesus described himself as being two things, as gentle and as lowly. The word lowly simply means humble in heart or modest. Now most of the time in the New Testament, the word lowly is used to describe people who are of low privilege or low social life circumstances. We know the downtrodden, the people that are in the poverty sectors of society. But the way that Jesus uses this term is that he did not try to portray himself in such a high esteem that he was unapproachable. Like some haughty and self-seeking leaders during his day would often do. I like a quote that I read this week as I was preparing for this message by a guy by the name of Dane Ortland. And I went on the, I found it on the crossway.org website. And it was actually published in March of 2020, just about a year ago. He said the point in saying that Jesus is lowly is that he is accessible. For all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme and uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. That's pretty powerful. You know, despite Jesus' true status as God's Son, the Messiah and Savior of the entire world, we see Jesus continually making himself available to the lowest people in society. Continually. The people that were the most looked down upon. We see this, for example, just last week we talked about Youth Day, right? And we looked at the scripture of Matthew, the 19th chapter, where Jesus permits and embraces the little children that are coming to him. Despite all the people saying, get these children out of here. You know, we're, we're too important for these children. Jesus embraced them. They were coming to him, and he gives the analogy of the faith of little children. We don't accept the kingdom like one of these little children. We also see it in Matthew, the 8th chapter. If you were to read this, you've heard the story probably many times, where Jesus heals a leper. And not only does he heal a leper, he reaches out and he touches this individual. Which just reading in our 21st century context without any understanding of the historical ramifications, we would know that this would be the most bizarre and off-limits thing that many people would look at. Because they were the untouchables. Jesus touches the untouchable. He has compassion on this individual who is a leper, who is an outcast of society. Can't even come in the camp. And we read in the Old Testament the different things that they had to do. When people would approach them, they would have to you know, cling, make different sounds, and, and, and tell people, watch out, I'm a leper. Because the idea was is if you touched a leper, you yourself would become unclean. And Jesus reached out in compassion and touched this individual, showing just how accessible he was. And we know that 
the other religious leaders of Jesus' day and the people that saw those other religious leaders, they probably saw nothing like this ever before. The other word that Jesus uses to describe himself is gentle. Gentle. Although this is a different Greek word than we see what Paul uses in verse 7 of 1 Thessalonians 2, it essentially means the same thing. The word brings out the idea of a spirit of meekness, kindness, and forgivingness. And Robert Muntz, who is a well-known Greek expositor, an expert in the Greek language, commented on this word in his expository dictionary of the Old New Testament words by saying, gentleness means to approach others, including one's enemies, in a humble and caring spirit, not using force to get one's way. And likewise, we see that gentleness is one of the, one of the nine fruits of the Spirit that we see in Galatians, the fifth chapter. And we can see this gentleness all throughout Jesus' ministry. We see it in John 11 where Jesus has compassion on a couple of sisters who just had a brother die and who were very sorrowful. And Jesus comes to them and he sees their sorrow. And he himself and his humanity, the shortest scripture we've ever seen in, in, in the Bible, Jesus wept. And of course he had compassion on them and he raised him from the dead. We see it in John 8 when Jesus is presented with a woman caught in adultery. A real sin. A serious sin. And Jesus looks at the leaders, looks at these people that are saying, hey, what do you have to say about this woman caught in adultery in the very act? Aren't you going to condemn her? And Jesus made those righteous men drop their stones by saying, anyone who is without sin cast the first stone. And this is not an example of Jesus accepting sin. He's not condoning sin, but he's choosing mercy and gentleness over judgment here. Matthew, the 21st chapter, verse 5, we see the prophesied Messiah coming into Jerusalem on a donkey like it was prophesied. And it's interesting because the ideas that are conjured up in the minds of people probably thought that there was this really tough warrior-like Messiah that was going to come in here. He was, he was going to drive out the Romans. And it says, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly. The word that's used here in Matthew, the 21st chapter, verse 5, the same word that we see in Matthew, the 11th chapter that we just read. Your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the fowl of a donkey. The gentleness of Jesus. And the last one I chose as an example. If you were to read Luke, there's other examples of this. What we see is, is Jesus is being arrested. He's being arrested to be taken to the Sanhedrin, to be tried, and eventually crucified. And one of the men that are arresting Jesus gets his ear cut off by Peter. And Jesus heals this man that's trying to arrest him and bring him to his death. These are just examples that we can look at to demonstrate the, the authenticity of what Jesus said was true when he said, I am lowly and gentle. Another quick quote from Dane Ortland, 
from the crossway.org uh, website. Meek, humble, gentle. Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. And the posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. You know, it's really hard, and I wished I could have caught the song leaders beforehand. It's really difficult not to think of the song by Andrew Peterson, Jesus, Friend of Sinners. That demonstrates exactly, I think, what we see in the Bible as far as the gentleness of Jesus. And how so often Christians have not displayed the gentleness of Jesus, but rather the harshness of pointing fingers and judging. I like it like someone said, well, I was listening to a message uh, recently somewhere. I think it was online real quick. But the person actually said, you know, I used to have a habit of judging people because their sin didn't look like my sin. Kind of admitting like, hey, look, okay, just because their sin is this might be a little bit more obvious. I have just as much sin and until I realize that I'm judging someone for their sin, just looking differently, it's almost like discrimination against sin, right? It's like, well, it's not how I sin. But it is true. It's so easy to get wrapped up in a judgment. And I just want to say this. This message today is for me, first and foremost. I struggle at many of these things. So by no means am I trying to uh, act like I don't need this just as much if, uh, as anybody, if not more. So as we look at the example that Paul and his companions show with their conduct towards the Thessalonians and the ultimate example of Jesus, these are some really tall standards to live up to. Really tall standards. We have to ask ourselves the question, how gentle do we walk among our fellow man and our fellow brethren? You know, the thing about gentleness, as I was thinking about it, in the examples of Paul and Jesus, is that it wasn't just something that they displayed on the outside. It wasn't just an exterior matter, an exterior behavior. But it was something that was driven by a genuine concern for people. It wasn't an act. It wasn't a forced attitude. But it was the result of having a true love for people. And you know what, looking at these examples, I got to thinking how easy it is to be gentle when the situation is right. You know what I mean? When life's calm, things are going right in life, you're happy, being gentle can kind of seem easy. But what about when things get hectic in life, maybe big or small? Life starts getting a little stressful. Stuff starts coming your way. A real small matter I kind of thought about as I was writing this was lately my son Asher has really taken an interest to fishing. And we are fortunate enough to live in a neighborhood that has a couple neighborhood ponds that he likes to go to. And this past week, one of the things that he kept doing is getting his reel all tangled up and in a backlash. And I can tell you this. After the third and fourth time that he got a backlash, I wasn't practicing gentleness. And I started to really get frustrated and a little bit harsh. And I, I can't help but reflect on, you know, 
how much my dad would be laughing about this uh, because I was the world's worst at getting backlashes. Uh, and I would sometimes just keep fishing with it, and it would just make it worse. But it's just funny. If you know much about my, my father uh, and, and me growing up, uh, it's just kind of a little revenge, I guess you would say. But this, among many other things, it got me thinking about how easy it is when things aren't going the way you want them, when things start to inconvenience you. Because really, why am I getting frustrated? Getting frustrated because I'm being inconvenienced and having to do something. I'm having to take the time to fix something that I've fixed four times before. But that inconvenience drove me to not be gentle. When things aren't going the way you want them to, when things start to inconvenience you, when life starts to get a little tough on the small matters or the big matters, it's easy to stop being gentle. It really is. And I think all of us can maybe identify with this. Whether it be with our family, with friends, with coworkers, things aren't going our way at work, projects not you know, going the way it's supposed to, you're on your way somewhere, you're late, you're lost, you and your wife or you and your husband or you and your kids are arguing about which way you should go. Sometimes it's on the way to church. Right? Okay? It's easy, I think, to let that gentle spirit go. And, 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 and we're all human, and it's difficult sometimes to maintain the gentleness and keep the perspective. I think the illustration of social media, as much as I appreciate social media for all the wonderful benefits of keeping people connected, I don't think there's ever been another medium that allows people to be as harsh and unkind toward one another than we've ever seen. And I'm not just talking about Facebook or Twitter, I'm talking about all of them. I think most of, the, most of us would know what I'm talking about and what I'm alluding to. And it seems like almost every platform has turned into, one, a place where you can air out your grievances, or two, argue with other people to the point of degrading and shaming one another. Probably more demonstrated than ever this, this past year, although it's not just been this past year, but seems to definitely have ramped up. This might be about politics or something seemingly mundane and not a big deal at all in the grand scheme of things, which politics aren't either. Just this last week at my neighborhood, we have a neighborhood pool. And there's a neighborhood Facebook page. So you've got a neighborhood pool, neighborhood Facebook page, and there's rules and guidelines about how you're to interact at that pool. Well, the decision was made to uh, have an adult-only swim late Thursday nights and early Friday mornings. And so that was not universally agreed upon. Uh, and there was someone who posted about this on the neighborhood Facebook page. And this morning I looked up that post and 191 comments have been made on that post. So you got some people that have kids and they're like, no, the pool should ever be limited to us. And then some people say, hey, no, we, we, know we should have some adult time. There's older people in the neighborhood. They want to enjoy the pool without kids you know, jumping around. 191 comments. Now, a lot of comments were just people asking questions. But I'm telling you, a good amount of these comments were not just people debating or discussing this but rather really harsh words being exchanged. 
Now you take that, and I bet everyone in here can think of an example of what that, think of an example of where you've seen that same behavior. Whether it be, you know, a news article online, whether it be, you know, what have you. Now this past year, I was talking to a friend, another thing that's really been divisive and shown people to maybe lose their sense of gentleness is with the COVID-19 pandemic. And of course, this is a divisive issue. People have different opinions about how it was handled. People have different opinions about the severity of it. I was talking to a friend this week, a good dear friend of mine. Uh, he actually does my taxes for me, but I taught with him for several years at another school whenever I was a teacher. And um, he's involved in his local church. And he was telling me, because he knows different pastors, he's involved in his own church, but because he lives in a town that's somewhat small, and he was telling me that there was a pastor that he was talking to that was a friend of his that said that the COVID-19 pandemic was one of the most divisive issues that his congregation had ever faced. And of course, that's because people have different opinions about it, and they lose sight and vision of what their purpose and aim is. Now, this isn't to say that you don't have an opinion about something. It isn't to say that you have maybe a difference. But when we start losing the perspective of what we're doing and what we're here for, I think it's very, very, very common that you see things like this happen. I'm very thankful that this congregation did not go through anything like that. Uh, and, I, and I'm hoping that uh, we never do. And I don't think we ever will if we keep a perspective on Christ and the gentleness and lowliness example that Christ gave us. My second point for today, walk in a way that seeks to serve others. Walk in a way that seeks to serve others. Clearly, it was Paul's mission to bring the gospel message to the Thessalonian church. That's clear it was. That's, that's what his mission was entirely, everywhere to bring the gospel message, to be a vessel to the Gentiles as Christ had set him apart for. But Paul did not just stop here. He didn't just stop at the preaching, at the presenting. He demonstrated it with his conduct, him and his traveling companions, and his behavior. And in doing so, he became, they became witnesses to true servanthood. That servanthood that Jesus clearly demonstrated and modeled for us. Let's go to Matthew, the 20th chapter. Very common passage. Matthew, the 20th chapter. Verse 20 of Matthew 20. We've heard this story before. Verse 20, Then the mothers of Zebedee's sons came to him, with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am able to drink or about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my father. 
Verse 24. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. They were thinking probably themselves, what in the... Are you serious? It's kind of comical. It really is when you think about it. I can just imagine them turning around. And I haven't watched The Chosen, but I don't know if there's an episode that kind of brings this out, but I can imagine them doing a good job with it. Verse 25, But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Now what I really want to point out is verse 25 and 26, where Jesus says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, yet it shall not be so among you. And I see that we can probably think of examples within Christianity where there are Christian leaders who have not practiced this servant style of leadership, even in our own tradition. But Jesus, he had a servant heart. And if we want to grow in the stature of him, we must have that servant heart as well. In the late, 19, or late 1960s, 1970s, maybe you've heard of this before. I'm someone who tries to be you know, uh, somewhat read on leadership. I like leadership. I like hearing about different leaders and their styles. But the 1970s, a new leadership style emerged, not just among the popular realm, but even among you know, academic journals, you know, scholars and people who look at you know, leadership theory and things like that. But the idea of servant leadership came out back in the late 1960s, late 1970s. And when I was in school to you know, become a school administrator, a school leader, this is obviously the, the leadership style that resonated me, with me the most. According to Peter Northouse in his book on leadership theory and practice, he says this on page 225 about the servant leadership theory. He says, servant leadership emphasizes that leaders be, be attentive to the concerns of their followers, empathize with them, and nurture them. Servant leaders put followers first, empower them, and help them develop full personal capacities. The theory essentially looks at the individual as the primary asset to the organization. Grow them, grow their capacities, then everything else will follow. Of course, with servant leadership, you have to be genuine, you have to have integrity, you have to look to you know, help people, to, to build them up, and in turn, the organization is benefited from that. And I think all of us would agree that if businesses, organizations, and even churches implemented servant leadership as a style, as the mode of leadership practice, which I may add, to me, is very obvious, obviously influenced by Christianity and by Jesus Christ. Because he was the ultimate servant leader. A few years ago, I listened to one of the most inspirational commencement speeches I had ever heard in my life. I, by the the name of a man by Rick Rigsby, kind of a difficult name, Rick Rigsby. I really recommend, if you have time, to go online and search for a video. 
called The Wisdom of a Third Grade Dropout. It's, it's amazing. It's a great, it's only about 10 minutes, the one I, I listened to. Uh, and I don't know if that was just an edited version, but he's given a commencement speech in front of college graduates. And I highly suggest it, about 10 minutes long. This man, he, had, he has multiple degrees. He has a brother who is a judge. But he said that both of him and his brother were far from the smartest people in their family. But rather, it was their dad, who happened to be a third grade dropout, Dropped out, I think, he believed, I think he said that his dad dropped out of school in third grade to go help on the family farm. But anyways, there's a couple things that really resonated with me on this video. I guess his dad had become a cook, a, a cook or a, a waiter or something like that. You know how waiters, they, they have a towel over their shoulder. You see that in the movies. I, don't, I mean, I, they, they have, you know, that's kind of what you see when you see the images of like a, a waiter or something like that at a, a nice restaurant. A little bit obviously different today. But he quoted his dad by saying, Son, make sure your, your servant's towel is bigger than your ego. Make sure your servant's towel is bigger than your ego. And what he was telling these individuals here was that it's not a matter, it doesn't matter how many degrees you have, it doesn't matter how big you get, life's about serving. You want to impact others, you want to grow your influence. Find your servant's towel. He also quoted, or not quoted, but he also referenced John Wooden. Maybe you've heard of John Wooden before. John Wooden was a longtime basketball coach at UCLA men's basketball. He won multiple national champions, championships. One of the things that Wooden was always known for was his leadership style. He was very different than all of these other you know, we're talking about NCAA, Division I college basketball. Serious stuff, right? Lots of on-the-line colleges, you know, they really expect their basketball programs, their football programs to be successful. They're paying a lot of money to the program, and there's a lot of pressure to be good, to be successful. John Wooden didn't cuss. He didn't yell. He didn't scream. He had a totally different leadership style than most people had at that level. But one of the things that he referenced, no matter all the national championships that he had, in the middle of the week, what you could find was John Wooden going into the custodian's closet, finding a broom, and sweeping his own gym floor. Division I college basketball coach that had won multiple national championships still was not too big to sweep his own floor, which was an example, a testament, of how he carried himself and how he lived his life. Now, these are just examples. And the advice was, you want to grow your influence, you want to be a leader, Find your broom. Find your servant's towel. Don't let your ego be too big. And I just thought I'd bring that out because we see ultimately the ultimate example, the greatest example, and that was Jesus Christ. And the reason, not only was it the ultimate example because of what he did, it's because of who he was and still willingly took on the things that came to him, and that was him dying for us. Which brings us to our last point, walk with selflessness. Walk with selflessness. Paul and his companions did not look for their own gain while in Thessalonica, but they made every effort to ensure that they were being faithful and effective examples to those believers in this community. 
As we read, instead of demanding support, they chose to walk with selflessness. They put them over themselves. The ultimate example of this is Christ. And we see a beautiful passage brought to us in Philippians, the second chapter. So let's go there. Philippians, the second chapter. We're going to read verses 5 through 8. You've heard this many times before. But let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance of, as a man, he humbled himself and, because obedient, and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now this string of verses is really interesting because it's possible, scholars have pointed out, that this was an early hymn that was sung in the early church. Now the way that they go and look for that is that they see little pieces in the Greek that might be, seem like they, it's been inserted, like it's almost like it's in, a, in, in an order of a stanza type setup. And so it's possible that this was an early hymn that was sung uh, that's very insightful regarding the nature and the character of Jesus Christ. And there are several reasons why this is such a big deal that brings us, that gives us an example of what true selflessness looks like. Number one, it shows the state in which Christ was in. The very form of God. The New American Standard Bible translation actually translates this as did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And this shows how much he treasured us. He did not hold on to what was rightfully his, but what was his right prerogative, being on the throne of God, but let it go for a season to perform the necessary work to redeem us. This is a big deal. This, this shows so much on the nature of Christ's selflessness. Secondly, it shows how in spite of his divinity, being in the form of God, he looked at our need and willingly took on flesh on our behalf. The correct rendering of what the language is saying is that he emptied himself. He divested himself. He who lived in the form of God in heaven gave up that eternal realm and entered our realm on our behalf. And by becoming flesh, he subjected himself to all the things that are subjected to humanity. The need for air, food, water, temptation, the stresses of life, sadness, the emotions that come upon us. He accepted all of these things. Lastly, it shows his love for us and his humility by not just being born of flesh, but even dying, one of the most humiliating and unjust means a person could fathom at this time in world history. His humility did not stop at just entering this realm and just being simply subjected to the basic elements of humanity, of being flesh, but he even willingly gave himself up to the hands of sinful unbelievers for both them as well as us. 
we must remember that crucifixion at this time was one of the most humiliating forms, one of the most degrading forms of execution that existed in this time in the world. So we must make it a priority to internalize these characteristics in our lives. We have to internalize the principles of gentleness, service, selflessness, if we're going to be growing in the nature and stature of Christ. And not just externally demonstrating these, but it becoming a part of us as the Spirit works to continually to transform us. It becomes an outpouring result of that transformation taking place. So we've basically moved on. Next message, we will continue on. We're going at a snail's pace here in First Thessalonians, I understand. This is the third message, and we finally got to verse 12, basically. Uh, but essentially, internalize these things. Let us not forget to walk with a purpose, to walk with courage and boldness, to walk with integrity, and of course, to walk with love. And there are more examples in what was presented here. But the examples that we can see that's tangible, that are actual examples of what love looks like, gentleness, service, sacrifice, or selflessness. Let us do these things. Let us move forward. Let us grow our influence. Grow our influence for Christ. As Christ says, we are the light of the world, but we know ultimately He is. But as we are reflecting Christ in our lives by being more and more like Him, by our nature being transformed,